Welcome to Think Orphan, the podcast for orphan excellence. Real talk with real people navigating the global orphan crisis. Welcome back to the Think Orphan podcast. As always, I am very excited. I'm Phil Dark, one of your hosts, and with me is Brandon Stiver. Um, I, I was going to say as always, but it hasn't been as always. Brandon, Brandon's a staple on Think Orphan, as you know, and recently we have had the pleasure of having him on um, as the as the as the co-host. Now, I mean, pretty much the host right now. I mean, you're the ho- I'm the co-host now. So, 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 Brandon, how are you doing, man? What's going on? I'm doing good. There, there was. I, I know you're a big uh, Premier League fan. You were not relegated. Uh, we're we're just we're just in it together, brother. Uh, yes. But yes, it's it's it's. I'm doing good. Um, it's Q4, you know. So around here, it's 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 heavy with uh, fundraising and strategic planning and all the same stuff that a lot of our uh, listeners are doing for their respective ministries and organizations. So doing good though. Uh, this week has been a little bit. Has been a little bit. Uh, more chill. So I'm very thankful for that. Well, good, good, yeah. good. Yeah. How about you, man? I try, well, I try to ignore all that Q4 <laughs> stuff, you know, I mean, I, I pretend I just kind of stick my head in the sand and then hope, you know, hope God just continues to provide as he always has. That's a good approach. I don't know if it's the best strategy. I really don't know. I'm just kidding. I, I, <laughs> uh, I, I kind of do do that a little bit. I'm not going to lie, but uh, no, I mean, folks out there, if you're listening to this as we're, as we're releasing it, yes, definitely. You will be in the middle of that. And uh, I do, I do encourage you to, to ask boldly and, and to, if you're doing work that is kingdom work for, you know, doing stuff for the gospel and to help kids and help kids be loved better then you should have no problem asking people to be a part of that. Give people an opportunity to be something bigger than themselves. I know that this isn't a fundraising podcast, but you know what, this is always a real part of, of what we, what we do, how we do it. And, and uh, I want to encourage you with that. And sometimes I'm a better coach than a player in that. So if you see me encourage me in that same thing, um, I'd appreciate it. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I also, in addition to the uh, fundraising, a lot of times, um, uh, vision, vision framing, it happens a lot of times around this time and, yeah. and often in January as well. And that's something that I was part of a, a three day offsite retreat with the global sports movement that I'm been getting involved with lately. And it, such a great, such a great group of folks and just had an amazing, amazing three days with them. Um, getting excited to, to do some uh, disciple making in connection with World Cup 26 and Olympics 28 and and work with the orphan care uh, folks around the world as well to combine the the great work with the global sports movement and the and the OBC uh, work. So there's a lot of cool stuff going on that I know we'll awesome, man. Do, um, in the next months to come. But for today, we have an amazing guest coming to us from El Salvador. So why don't you uh, give us a little background into who we have today? Yeah, well, you know, maybe maybe season 10, maybe we should do a fundraising episode because uh, that's very pertinent to this conversation. But not a bad idea. Not a, not bad, a bad idea. idea. No, I, I, I have a few people on my list that could do that well. Um, today, though, we're not talking about fundraising. Uh, we're talking about uh, El Salvador and we're talking about uh, family care. We're talking about uh, the work being done uh, through Project Red uh, in El Salvador. So we got Kara Wilson Garcia joining us today on the podcast. Uh, Kara has uh, been a friend for the last couple of years, uh, has, has been uh, just somebody that's really kind of exemplified uh, to me in a lot of ways what um, effective family care uh, family strengthening um, 
child-focused programming really looks like. Um, and she's doing it in a unique context there in Central America. So um, I figured that uh, for our listeners that are that are interested in, in how do I run my program well, Kara would be an awesome person to talk to. So uh, we're really excited to have her on and uh, we'll welcome in here for the interview. Well, Kara Wilson Garcia, uh, it is a it is a pleasure and it's an honor to have you on the Think Orphan podcast. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, Kara, you are coming to us live from El Salvador, and uh, you know this may be for some of our listeners their first opportunity to kind of hear a little bit about what Project Red is doing and 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 hear your story a little bit. Um, I would love if you could just uh, take a few moments and. Just briefly introduce yourself and, and how you came to working with orphaned and vulnerable children and vulnerable families, and as well as what led you to working specifically in El Salvador. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for having me. I have a, probably a, a, a weird story of how I got into all of this, so bear with me. <laughs> I, uh, I'll start with how I'm in El Salvador, and first of all, uh, I was in the States last week and someone asked me at the doctor's office, I said, they, they said, where do you live, El Salvador? What's that? <laughs> um, never heard of it. It's a really small country. A lot of people haven't heard of it. Uh, it is in Central America and uh, probably in the news most recently because of uh, unaccompanied minor migrations and, and such. So um, I came to El Salvador when I was 14 years old for the first time uh, on a mission trip on a, you know, one of the, the, your typical church mission trips where you're all wearing like neon matching shirts. And, um, and I, I uh, really, if this may sound, this does sound cheesy and cliche, but I really know it to be true. I was at that time called to be here long-term and um, I can't, I I still feel that and know that every single day. And, and I've been here now for 11 years living here. And, um, and so I came to El Salvador as a mission tripper, teenager, just knowing that I love working with children and really didn't know much more than that. Um, Mm. And so I studied uh, to be a missionary, and then I got went to get a master's in international development. And uh, I never even I'm I'm I was so far removed from the whole world of uh, orphan and vulnerable children and what that means and what everything that goes along with it. I just yeah. kind of fell into um, what I do. So uh, I moved here. I was just knew I wanted to be here, passionate, excited, and uh, took kind of the first job that would hire me and pay me enough to live. To live. Mm-hmm. Um, so that job ended up being a, a re- really. This is how I got into all of this. That that job really ended. It was not. I, I didn't last long in that job because it was really focused on um, getting kids adopted from El Salvador to the United States. And I mm. quickly learned that I don't want to do that. And, um, 
but that had opened my eyes to what was happening in El Salvador. Um, and, and it, I'm, I'll talk about it in a minute, the, the, the law that was, uh, came into effect right when I moved to El Salvador and the needs that came along with that. And that is how I got into all of, all of uh, this world of orphaned and vulnerable children that I knew nothing about before and have learned about by doing. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I, I, you know, you even mentioned that international adoption piece, you know, there have been countries where international adoption has been more prominent. Uganda was hot for a while. Ethiopia was Mm -hmm. hot for a while. Guatemala, which is obviously Mm -hmm. in your region was hot for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this wasn't on the script or anything, but since you brought it up, I mean, what, what were some of the challenges that you saw on the ground when it come to, was, was it a problem of properly vetting families? Was it, ethical things. I mean, what, what was some of the things that kind of left a, a difficult piece in your, in your, uh, what would I say? A difficult, a difficult pill to swallow, I would say when it came yeah. to the international adoption piece and what you guys were doing there on the ground, albeit brief. Yeah. And it, it's, it's very complex and continues to be complex to this day because there's a new law in El Salvador for adoptions and it's being reformed by the new government. And it, there's, it's just so much there, but at the time, um, it really adoptions were just locked. Like there were no international adoptions. There were hardly any national adoptions at the time. And and I'll tell more about the Lapina law. Uh, it had a lot to do with that. Um, and but really, that wasn't the piece that. And I, I will I'll spare the details. But I really. I didn't agree with the way that the organization worked and wanted to work. Um, and so I, it just, it wasn't for me and it kind of was a little jarring of an experience. Um, but I'm thankful for it because it, it got me to meet people and learn about what was happening in the country. Yeah. That's a really good segue into the next thing we're going to talk about really and just that's the the work that you and project red are doing in el salvador so you talked about the uh, lepina law i think i pronounced that correctly based on my spanish um and uh you know i i got i got i still got it a little bit i haven't been down there for a while but you know it's it's still there it's still there somewhere i do live in california after all um but uh how does can you share, first of all, this is really the context that Project Red works in and how that culture and policy, that law, other laws, uh, really affect the care of children uh, in El Salvador? I think El Salvador is an anomaly. And I, I really didn't know, you know, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> when you walk into something uh, innocently and ignorantly, bet 11 years ago and um it's so it's such a different context than the rest of the world as I understand it I haven't heard of any other uh country that that has had a policy quite as drastic as El Salvador so uh the Latina law is the law for integral child and adolescent protection for El Salvador and this law is, you know, comes from the Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, if you read it, it's really like a copy paste of other similar laws from South America. Um, 
Spain really designed for a more developed uh, economy and system and uh, public system. And, um, and I, the focus, the, the law is very, you know, 300 something articles, but uh, where, where the big change that the law brought about besides creating, you know, new government entities and different things, but the, the big focus was, uh, and rightfully so, on the fact that children should live in families, which of course, you know, that, that is, that's what we're all talking about and we all want, but the way it has been implemented in El Salvador has been, um, and I can, I, I feel like confident in saying this now, and I don't feel scared saying this now because there has been a change in government and I feel like we're in a different position, but it has been quite frankly, a disaster. Um, back when, uh, well, I guess for the first half of my time in El Salvador, the focus was on getting kids out of orphanages and out of institutional care, all institutional care as fast as possible. And so, especially the first couple of years, I mean, there were thousands of kids that were reintegrated uh, with absolutely, for sure, no preparation, um, definitely no follow-up. Uh, and many of those cases aren't even, there's no record of them. Most, most of the first cases, there's no record of them. Um, in, a, in a meeting I had kind of in the middle of all of that with the, at that time, the head of the child protection system, uh, who was the wife of the vice president. Um, she said, we're really proud because we were, uh, you know, we were signaled we had too many kids in institutional care. So we're really proud that we have less than 500 now. We had, you know, 14,000 and now we have less than 500. And that's with, with no, you know, nothing. That's just, you know, saying, okay, kids belong in family. So there we go. We're just going to do that. So um, there's, that's the brief version of all of it. And then so that was kind of the first half of my time here. The second half has been characterized as there's a case of abuse or neglect and this society now, because the, the law changed kind of all of the institutions, no one knows where to report a case or how to report a case. And if, if an organization like, like Project Red reports a case, we just know that we have to send about six or seven reports and maybe go to the higher ups in the government for anything to happen um, for any, for child, for child protection services uh, to even exist. So, um, so that's kind of the context I walked into and seeing it as an, an outsider, being a foreigner, being new to the country, uh, completely unaware of a lot of cultural nuances um, and new to the world of child protection. I really didn't have any experience whatsoever. I just was this 
24 year old kid who was really excited to live in El Salvador and work with kids. I had no idea what I was getting into. And um, it was, <laughs> to say the least, it was very disheartening and alarming and um, earth shattering to see what was happening. And so that's, as I kind of understood a little more and more what was what the context really was and the harsh reality of what was happening, um, that's when I decided to start Project Red. I had uh, tried to get you know other jobs with larger organizations, but I, I was like, but but no, this is like no one knows this is happening. God's put me in this place to like have conversations with people inside the government system to like realize that there's no one doing anything about this. Like I've got to do something about this. So that's when I started Project Red. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think you, you bring up a lot of, there's so much there that we could mine. And, and a couple of the things I talk to people all the time, and this is really a, a case study in that. And it's the fact that, this work is not only contextualized, yes, uh, but the, the theory practice gap is massive usually. And we tend to try to bring this great theory that makes sense on paper, makes sense in a room full of talking heads talking about it, mm -hmm. and we plug it in wherever around the world. And mm -hmm. it just doesn't work anywhere, let alone, you know, it might, you know, some things work somewhere and then we try to plug that in somewhere else. Mm -hmm. That usually doesn't work either. But it sure as heck doesn't work when we don't, when we just try it out wholesale without realizing that it's nuanced, particularly when we're talking about human lives and children. I mean, every kid is different. Just look at my house with right. five biological children. They're all totally different. And I talk about that all the time and I see it every morning, right? And so when we do that, there is this, we need to make sure to contextualize it. We need to sure, make sure to make, to really allow for small pilots for theory practice gap to be worked out. But, and with that, not but, and that's something that you're doing. That's what Project Red's all about, right? I mean, at least that's what I, I see on the website. That's what I know, a little bit that I know of what you guys are doing. But one of your purpose statements um, is that Project Red exists to fill a gap in the system. And, you know, knowing from your website, development, education, family strengthening, or a lot of the things that you're working on. But what does that look like in reality? You know, can you put, like, a little bit more flesh on that um, purpose statement. What does a systems approach look like for your organization uh, and what gaps are you filling? Yes, um, I, I was taken aback by five children. I have one baby and it's a lot. It, so, as I've said to people, they say, how do you do it? And, and I say, honestly, you just trust that God will keep them alive after three. And so that's just the reality. And I think Brandon can probably attest to that as well. So yep. anyway, one yes. is really hard, though. Going from zero to one is, yeah. is, is really, really hard. And then going from two to three is really, really hard. After that, it's <laughs> like, what's another kid? Let's do this. Come on. Let's, let's make it happen. <laughs> That is impressive. Both of you are impressive. <laughs> um, well, okay, so Project RED stands for, it's an acronym, it stands for Reintegration, Education and Development. Uh, we work with cases of, of children who have been and or will be, are being reintegrated with uh, their family members, uh, whether that's you know, any biological family member. Uh, we we have an approach uh, that is, you know, 
a trust-based, uh, trauma-competent approach to how we how we work with uh, kids and families. And we have uh, three programs. Our first is our first and largest program, the one that we started with back in 2011, was uh, is family strengthening. Uh, and we do that, we work with the entire family of every case that's re referred to us, um, the entire family group of children who are uh, who have either left uh, an orphanage or um, now we're taking cases also of children who have been, uh, who've experienced some sort of trauma and are being placed with different family members. Um, so we, the, those are the cases that we work with and we create a, an intervention plan based on the specific needs of each of the family members and the family group as a whole. We work with a hundred families uh, at a time on a rolling basis. We're about to expand that. We're gonna go to the other side of the country next year and expand our that program. And uh, families go through different phases of intervention. We focus on um, education, scholarships. We do uh, counseling, play therapy. We have support groups for mothers, for parents, for teens. Um, which has been a little affected by COVID, of course. Um, we have, we build homes for families. We help uh, with, you know, continuing education for parents if they don't have, you know, like a GED type of thing. Um, we provide, you know, beds and physical things. It, it really is so diverse what we do. And it really is based on, the needs of every family. And a lot of what we do is referring uh, families to other you know, institutions um, to get medical care, you know, et cetera. Um, our second program is our advocacy program. And um, it really is more like a person than a program, but it is, it's for those cases that um, you know, continue, we continue to see abuse and neglect take place and we advocate on their behalf so that they can either be placed in a different family situation and we search for those families and, and make those suggestions to judges and to child protection system caseworkers, um, or in the worst case scenario, go to institutional care. Um, our third program is actually institutional care that we started about a year ago. It's called Bridge of Hope, and it is uh, it is a, an emergency shelter for it's like a first stop for for those types of cases. Um, so our and this is going to answer how we how we are filling the gap in the system. We really depend on our relationships with our government partners, and that's kind of all over the board. It depends on on who it is. We're, we like have different techniques of how we're developing and maintaining those relationships. And it's that, that's a big challenge, but we really depend on that trust so that we can have fluid communication about cases with them. And so a child comes into Bridge of Hope and uh, we immediately start investigating and looking for, you know, what, what their family situation is, what uh, what alternatives there are, 
if we can work in our family strengthening program with the family to resolve uh, the problems that have caused uh, you know, the, the issues in the first place. And so we try to get those kids out of institutional care as quickly as possible. So that, and, and then we also try to prevent them from being sent to dangerous homes, uh, which we've done a lot of, thankfully. And we found alternatives, um, alternate, uh, alternate family members. And so I think that the gap in the system is, and this is probably true of every child protect, protection system in any country, any given country, their caseworkers are burnt out, have way too many cases, have way too few people on their team, have been doing this for too long um, and have not been taking care of themselves. Uh, and and we, we have an advantage and we have way less cases and we have resources, you know, private resources that we can do a more thorough job and really take, you know, time to go and investigate and, and talk to and interview and work with the families. Something that the, our, our government partners, not because of their own fault, but they just don't have those resources to be able to do that. So, um, and then the other, you know, our family strengthening program fills a major gap because there are no other programs in the country that work with families that, that monitor, much less work with and support families after children have been reintegrated. So we, we have a program that lasts about two years and or longer if needed or shorter if needed, but usually it's an, an average of two years. And we make sure that that family is capable, willing, and able to provide uh, care and love for, for that child or children. And so uh, th this is something that we started doing this just kind of because the need arose in El Salvador. And then, and then like eight years later, I met One Million Home and I was like, oh, there are other people doing this. Oh. Cool. Uh, so it really has been uh, very much a, a spirit-led thing because, like I said, we, I didn't. This is just I've kind of happened on all of this need, and we've developed this uh, organization and our programs organically, um, and and so that I guess yeah. I guess that would be the gaps that we we're filling. And let me ask you this, Kara, you know, family strengthening is something that we talk a lot about in, in, in my view, it can be um, a pretty broad category. Um, it also helps when we kind of define terms and you guys having such a thorough family strengthening program, let me just kind of put you on the spot a little bit. Uh, and, and this could be uh, one person could have a diff definition that differs from another, but how would you define family strengthening and what, and yeah, just how would you define it? Hmm. You are putting me on the spot. Sorry um, about that. No, that's okay. <laughs> I should be able to answer this. Uh, I only do it to my I, smartest uh, okay. uh, guests. So okay. go ahead. <laughs> um, well, I guess that, you know, fam every family is its own universe. And so tr to me, family strengthening, a program for family strengthening cannot be, it's really hard to standardize and um, make like what a one size fits all thing. So family strengthening, the key, I, I guess I'm not defining it, but the key to 
strengthening, truly strengthening and strengthening well, <laughs> equipping a family is to do it as at, a, at the most individual level possible and to dig as deep as possible. And that challenge with that is that it really depends on the family to want to, to want, want to get better. Um, but our goal in the end is, well, I already st- said what our goal is. Our goal is to ensure that these children are living, going to live long-term in safe families and loving families and that they are going to be safe and loving families for their children in the future. Um, yeah, that is, uh, that's our goal. And I, I think that the way that, that we do family strengthening is, uh, um, to trying to do what you can to resolve those problems. Um, I, it, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of uh, a lot of effort, and sometimes sometimes years. And so, uh, so that I don't know if that I might not have answered the question very a well. Plus. But a plus, a oh, plus. No, okay. no, that was so good. And, and what I what I love that you highlighted is that importance of that individualized response. And you're only going to get that when you have skilled social workers and outreach teams that know their families that know their yeah. children. Um, cause there is, there's too much, nu- there's too much nuance, right? We talk about Phil's yes. family versus my family. And we say, Oh, Phil's got, you know, five kids. I've got four kids, you know, we're both, you know, uh, you know, white men and their, you know, middle years or like, you could be like, Oh, these are so similar, man. If you got into, you mm-hmm. know, and we both live on the West coast and all these things that are similar, you'd be like, mm-hmm. Oh, this is like the same thing. I guarantee that's not the case. I guarantee that there's all sorts of intricacies just between our families and we're not in vulnerable and at-risk situations. So all the more so when we're talking about families in El Salvador or families in other places of the world that are in vulnerable positions. Um, and you know, one of the vulnerabilities you know, that's specific to El Salvador um, you know, that a lot of these families are facing is uh, what we're aware of as uh, a lot of kind of inner turmoil and conflict that has been happening in El Salvador. You know, one of the ways that El Salvador has been in the news um, is because a lot of asylum seekers um, that have uh, come to our southern border in the last few years are actually coming from El Salvador. And I would just love to kind of get your view of being an American living in El Salvador rather than the other way around. Um, you know, what is the context like and, and what is it like for the people that you're working with? What is it like for your staff? Um, you know, and, and what should we on this side, you know, of the border be aware of that's, that's actually happening in El Salvador and the adverse effect that's happening on communities and families and children? Oh man, that's a big question. It's, it's, uh, it's really awful. (laughs) The, the gang violence here is, is what defines everything. So, um, everything in society. Um, I, it's really been, I will, I, I will say, thankfully, um, and miraculously nothing um terrible has ever happened to any of our team members in the 10 10 and a half years that we've been 
going out and visiting families. And of course we've like learned how to, how to deal with these interactions, but you know, most of us have all been held at gunpoint at some point and going and, and we're stopped. I have such an advantage in that I'm white. I'm like really, really white. And I like, there's no disguising that I, I cannot pass for a Salvadoran no matter how long I live here for. And so I have that advantage and I've, I mean, I've used it and, you know, even last year, one of our, you know, one of our team members was being held at gunpoint and I, and I went over and said, Hey, I'm Kara, I'm a gringa. And and it, and it was like, okay, you're good. So, so that's my perspective and what a blessing to be able to have that, uh, you know, out. But for the people who live this day after day after day, they're oppressed, they're uh, just living in fear. It's awful. Like you can't, we we have for example like we one of the things we we've kind of gotten a little bit into some microloan very micro microloan things but we had to stop all of that because of extortions and because you can't do that you can't have any sort of small business because you'll you'll be extorted and then it's going to be worse for you after so it's um everywhere we go we have to ask permission we have you know, we've covered our vehicles with all kinds of like cheesy logos and Bible verses so that, you know, cause gangs respect Christians and, um, and, you know, you just learn like the tricks of the trade and it's, but it's, it's really awful and it only continues to get worse. And it's, it's just an oppressive, dark, dark place. And when you think about vulnerable children coming out of um, an orphanage, especially if they've been living in institutional care for like five or 10 years, and then they're being reintegrated with a family that they've never met before. This is a lot of the early cases that we saw into one of these communities. I mean, what do you expect is going to happen? They're going to automatically join a gang because that is what is going to save their lives, literally. So it it, it is a really, it's a really tough uh challenge that we have, but it's, it's part of our work too, you know? Yep. I, I do know, you know, working in Honduras for years, um, you know, going through Guatemala, similar, um, just flown through El Salvador, but I, I, I know a lot of the CA five is Central America five. That is, um, similar issues, similar, um, especially in the big cities. It's, it's, it's brutal. It's brutal. That's just the reality on the ground. And again, doing all going back to that theory practice gap, right? These are all things that go into that mix when we're talking about these things. So um, thanks so much for just sharing, being vulnerable, transparent in, in uh, what's going on and what you're doing. Very, very good folks. I, I encourage you to go out and uh, learn more about Project Red. Can you give us that website again? I think we may have mentioned it, but just uh, the website for Project Red so people can go check it out. Yeah, projectredelsalvador.org. 
keeping it pretty simple for you folks. Mm -hmm. So um, we'll have that on the show notes as well. But uh, we, ha we always have a couple questions at the end here, you know, and uh, love to learn. Brandon and I both love to learn. I know a lot of our uh, listeners just love to learn from our guests. And so uh, what have you read, watched, or listened to that has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Uh, well, I mean, I think that this is, this is what probably a lot of people say, but everything I've learned about trauma informed trauma competent, it, it has changed not only my way of thinking and feeling, it has been like a, like changing our operation system of our organization. And, you know, there are so many resources, there's so many like different facets to that, um, but I will say my favorite book on trauma and uh, that, and, and it's, I mean, it's, it's a tough one to read, but it's, it's just so good. It's called the boy who was raised as a dog. And it is so good. Like if you, if you have any like interest in this, you like won't be able to put it down. Um, it's so, so good. So I'll, I'll just say that that's my number one choice for, for that. Yep, it's about child, childhood trauma. Right. Right. And uh, yeah, that's definitely not, not a ton of times, but that's been, that's been recommended a couple of times. So, you know, as I've said on the show, if you know me, you know that if someone recommends a book three times to me and I respect them, not the same person, three different people, then, then I have to read it. And so, you know, um, that that uh, folks, if that's the case for you, too, and you have a similar rule, then you got to read the book. Let's you got to go out, get it and read it, it just is so. Um, and you should be reading that book anyway, if you are doing this work. So last question we have, what uh, what person has has most impacted your thinking on how we can love orphan and vulnerable children with excellence? Uh, I there are a lot, but um, I mean, I have two like two very different category. That's fine. Go answers for it. two two different right. categories. Sure. Yeah, one would be a a judge here that I met right when I moved here. She has been a a friend and confidant, and we have been we've gone through a lot, and she's taught me a lot. I like to think that I've taught her a lot too about the reality of families. And, uh, and it's just been a really wonderful relationship and friendship that, um, that I've treasured and she, it's been great. And then, um, I, I would say some of, you know, I, I can, I won't, I won't go into detail, but, you know, there are a couple of those stories of these teenagers that really, really are so so vulnerable and have avoided gangs and have avoided, uh, you know, all of these pitfalls despite their situation. And I, I think that they're who I learned from the very most. Great. So, well, yeah. Thank you so much, uh, not just for being on today, which you know, we very much appreciate, and I'm sure our listeners do as well, but for what you're doing, uh, what you've done, and uh, what we know you'll continue, continue to do. So thanks a lot for being on. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Thanks again, Kara, for uh, just again, as I said during the interview, thanks for being vulnerable and transparent. Folks out there, I think you could tell that. I mean, she's just she's just sharing from her heart. And it was I know I uh, as as usual, I learned some stuff, um, you know, working in Honduras for for so many years, about 13 years, um, a lot of that hit home and I just, I totally get it. I mean, even to the point where she's like, I think I can share this now. Um, cause it's a new, uh, administration, but you know, beyond that, just, just the, the things that you're, you gotta navigate in the midst of doing this work. Um, the other funny thing is, is I was talking to somebody this about this the other day and central America is part of North America. Right. But so many people are like, yeah, we're doing ministry in North America. They don't even include Mexico, let alone (laughs) the rest of Central America. And so I just want to remind folks out there, a little public, you know, PSA here. Central America is part of North America. It's not its own continent and it's not part of South America. And everything south of the border of the United States is not Mexico. So I'm just throwing that out there to you, folks. Um, And it is important because, as she said, not many people know El Salvador, which is crazy to me to think about. Um, But, you know, a lot of people, same thing with Honduras. They'd be like, oh, how's Guatemala or how's Venezuela Mm -hmm. or how's whatever. And, and I think it's important for us to, if if you're doing this work, it's really important to know the difference that Africa is not a country, right? I mean, I'm sure you got that one, right? Right, Brandon. I mean, that, that probably hits home with you a little bit. 54 countries. And that's, it's, and it's massive, right? So, and very different, right? And all these countries are different, but there are similarities in different regions. And so that was something that really, um, I, I really enjoyed the conversation. And so how about you, man? What really stuck out? I know this is stuff that you're, is really near and dear to your heart and what 1 million, 1 million homes doing as well. Sure. Yeah. You know, the thing that comes to mind when it comes to this conversation with Kara today is just what's going on at the national level and the impact that that has on practitioner organizations like Project Red. Um, you know, we talk a lot on this podcast. We talk a lot about it within child welfare, uh, global child welfare and care reform. And, you know, we talk about the importance of policy. We talk about advocacy. We talk about INGOs. We talk about all of these different things um, that can influence positive policy. Right. And, you know, what she's describing there, it wasn't necessarily like the words were bad or anything in this Lapina law, Um, but the implementation, how it was rolled out, put children at risk. Right. And we would almost look at that and, you know, you could at face value be like, oh, wow, look at that. El Salvador, you know, reintegrated 90, 95 (laughs) percent of the children, you know, out of residential care. And now they're back in families. And if you just take that at face value, you know, you're really missing the point um, because what that actually meant was these ginormous gaps in services. It meant that children were uh, put in child protection. Uh, They were compromised when it came to child protection. I mean, in a lot of ways, and and Carrie even alluded to this, and and as somebody that works with organizations kind of uh, on what would you say? Four different continents. Um, I haven't really seen the 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 effects of a single uh, law that was enforced um, quite like what she describes there in there. So in, in El Salvador. So I think it's a cautionary tale. To be honest, I think El Salvador is a cautionary tale um, of what could go wrong when we say we're going to reform child care and 
Um, we're going to fast track reintegration and so forth. Um, you saw it in a lot of countries last year um, when there were these rapid reintegrations. Um, again, we want kids to go into family. We want those pathways to be open, but only when it's safe. Right. And um, El Salvador um, was one of those uh, countries that was you could say it was ahead of the curve, but at the same time, it put children and families at risk. And um, we want to avoid that. And I just appreciate, you know, the ways that Project Red, to the degree that they've been able to, and they've really built a remarkable program there. Um, but the ways that they've been able to kind of step into some of those gaps to help uh, safeguard children and to help meet some of those service gaps that Kara was describing. So um, I, I think that that's the big thing and, and, and something for, for care reform advocates such as myself to really be mindful of. Um, we don't need more El Salvador type of you know, uh, uh, implementation or really enforcement. It's not even proper implementation. So that was what stuck out to me. Uh, yep. You shared a little bit, but anything else that kind of that, that stuck out to you, Phil? Well, yeah, it's just right along that same theme. I think it's so important for us to um, understand that. I talked about it in my class at Jessup yesterday, just this idea of, you know, that theory practice gap, the idea that we, we love an idea. So we want to implement it tomorrow. And, you know, we were talking about foster care, right? And, and we, you know, there's, there's places where foster care is now the answer, right? But there's seven foster families in the country, right? You go, th that's, that's asinine. Can I say that? I don't know if I can say that on the podcast, but I just did. It's, it's not so, a bad word. It's, it's an okay. unrelated root word. Yeah, okay. You're good. Okay, good. It is yeah, asinine. I just, I just wanted to make sure. I just wanted to make sure I'm good. We're keeping it PG it. people. I didn't want it to go to the explicit category on, on iTunes or whatever. So, um, but it is, it's crazy and it causes these issues. I remember talking to Mike Doris, similar Guatemala about rushing the integration and forcing uncles or aunts or grandmas or to forcing family members to take the kids because there's this push and quotas on, we have to get X number of kids into homes. And so if you find a breathing kin, you put the kid in their home and they either become a slave and one kid got killed or ended up dead in a, in a home in Guatemala. And it's, it's, it, it goes, it actually makes it harder to do what we know is right. And to, we all know reintegration with biological family is the ideal. That's the home run that we can do. As you said, healthy biological family, because there's a reason why there was a break. Now it could be just poverty. It's usually a mix of many different things, right? But if it's super abusive or prone to super abusive, of course, we don't want the kid there. That's 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 we wouldn't do. I mean, if we're not going to do it here in in Washington, California, wherever, why the heck would we want to do that somewhere else? Right. And so to force this thing, because in theory, it works is just it's it's absolutely backward steps. Yeah. And then we have to then reform the reform and then we're going to reform the reform of the reform. Right. And we could go on and on and on and yeah. on. Or we can take a step back and go, all right, let's do this right. Yeah. And it may be that there is still and is still a need for the orphanages right now for the short term for the you know, I heard some great things about, you know, this home was, it was when I was doing the foster care research for what's kind of new on for the class. 
I heard a TED talk out of West Virginia on that, where the guy was talking about how when they really got down, he said, we need to ask the question, why? Okay, why are there why are there only seven in that, in that county? That's where that number seven came from. In that county, only seven foster care families because they had the one and done problem because they were getting burnt out because they kept calling them with emergency situation after emergency situation. And they're like, we can't do this. And I know that I'm, I'm preaching to the choir on this one with everyone that people listen like, yeah, yeah, we have the same problem. Well, what happened was they're like, what's they, they kept saying, well, why are there only seven? And they got down. He said, keep asking why until you get to the answer. Well, it's just the way we've always done it. And then bingo, let's start looking into that. And he said, basically the problem was, the social workers had these emergency cases and he, and he said, well, how long would you need to find a fit, like a right fit? And they go, usually it's about three days. That's the magic number. And he says, but we don't, she goes, but we don't have three days. We got a kid. They need a place. So a church said, basically, we have a parsonage we can give to you if you have, if you can find people to care for these kids for those three day periods. And they did. And then they were able to take those three day periods, find the right fits. Now they have a hundred and something foster families in the, in that region. And, and it's, again, it's not always that simple, but there are those questions that we need to ask in these situations to go, okay, this theory, will it work? Yes. Okay. Well, are you sure? Well, why do you think that? Well, because we have this in place or whatever, you know, it's, it's like foster the city here in, in the San Francisco area, they have, they, they realized that if for a foster family, we need to have four supporting families to really make it work. And they do that. And now they have, they don't have the one and done problem. So there, again, I, I could go on and on. I'm not going to, but that was what really stuck out to me was just that theory practice gap folks. We talked about it on the show. We talk about the interconnectedness of everything and we have tools in our tool belt. We don't want to get rid of the tools in the tool belt. We want to realize how can we use them, how they can be used appropriately, properly. And we, we need all those tools and we need them to be done with excellence. And that's why we wrote In Pursuit of Excellence. That's why we're doing Think Orphan Podcasts. That's why One Million Homes doing what they're doing. That's why Faith the Actions do what they're doing. We're down the line, I could keep going. That's why we're doing what we're doing. So we can do with excellence and not just do stuff because we heard it worked somewhere else, not just do stuff because it looks good on paper. Was that I, a soapbox? Was that a soapbox? I don't know. Yeah, man, man you preach it. a little bit of a preacher there. All right, we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll take it, Pastor Phil. Thank you. No, that was, it was well said, man. No, I, I agree. I think that um, there are good ideas, but if we're not putting the manpower behind it, if we're not really fleshing out those ideas, if we're not really putting those theories and those policies to effective practice, then it's not going to go. Um, and that, you know, just going back to Kara, you know, that's why we need organizations like Project Red that of their own volition, right? These are nonprofit, you know, charitable organizations that are saying, uh, you know, we recognize a gap here. You know, these families need to be strengthened. So let's strengthen families. These kids need advocates in the court. Let's advocate for these kids. You know, um, we need organizations like that. And, and even as we are hoping and believing, you know, change is possible. It is possible to have good countrywide case studies of care reform. Um, but it's going to take a lot of intentionality. It's going to take a lot of humility. It's going to take a lot of leadership. It's going to take a lot of professionalism uh, to make that happen. And, you know, hopefully we don't get, uh, you know, a bunch of unsafe reintegrations. Um, 
because we have decided to work together and uh and to do it with excellence you know which yeah. is what which is what we we are always kind of focusing on with this podcast so uh well said uh thank you pastor phil for that sermon on on child welfare and and effective implementation and you mentioned uh foster the foster the city right there in, mm-hmm. in san francisco that's that's actually a, a cool program i heard their uh, leader speak at one point um but anyways uh you know i i would love to you know, as we start to wrap up here, uh, speaking of pastors, I think you got a, I think you got a, a, a recommendation for us. Do you not, my friend? I do. Very good segue. That was impressive. I was like, are you still calling me a pastor? Like I call you doctor? <laughs> if you preach. Oh yeah, there you go. Okay. I don't know. Um, I have preached sermons. I, I, however, am not shepherding a flock. So I would say I will not take the pastor title. All right. Preacher. Um, preacher. I have preached. Um, but, uh, and actually Dave Carlson, who, who's one of the leaders of foster the city, which used to be foster the Bay, if you're confused, um, but they're working in different cities now. Um, he actually guest lectured yesterday in my class, his daughter's in my class. So it's pretty cool. It's kind of fun. So, um, and we had just met recently, so it's cool. Anyway, uh, the recommendation is this series that pastor Matt Chandler, he actually is a pastor village church out in Dallas, Texas. Um, he's do he did a series earlier this year on revelation. And as he says, I will say as well, I hope that you use it as a substitute or not as a substitute, but as a complement to your local church. Um, so with that caveat, it's a fantastic series on Revelation. And just the last one I, I listened to um, was on this, the seven seals, Revelation six and seven. And just talking about it gets really bad and then it gets really good. Like there's so much bad and it's it is going on and it will continue to go on until Jesus returns. But we as Christians, we sing in the midst of it. And we, we have survived and we will survive through all the, the horsemen riding, doing, trying to destroy everything. We can get caught up in that and we can, and we can just get beaten down. Or we can remember who we are and we can sing. And so I just encourage you with that. And um, it's something that I've been, I've been encouraged by it. A lot of times people get scared with revelation. What I, one of the things I really like about it is it's a flyover. I mean, he gets kind of into it, but it's 12 week ser- series. So, you know, he can't get into the minutia and he purposefully doesn't get into the minutia. And a couple of things he says is it can't mean something for us that it didn't mean for them. That's really important for us to remember. Um, you know, and, and so I think we put so much onto it that isn't there. And we don't see a lot of things that are there. And so I think he, he just, I, I really appreciate Matt Chandler. For those of you who are on the more reserved side, it may seem like he's yelling at you all the time if you aren't used to him, but you, you get used to it and, and really listen um, to what he's saying because it's solid stuff. Uh, that's so good. Yeah, no, uh, always, always looking for good uh, sermons to follow along with him. Matt Chandler is definitely a, a good preacher, good teacher. Uh, so, wow, this has been good, man. Yep, appreciate that recommendation. Sure. Appreciate Absolutely. appreciate getting uh, into this with you today. And 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 again, thank you to Kara Garcia for for joining us on the podcast. And yeah, yep. well, folks, you know, I I will. I just want to implore you as we close up. You know, make sure if you if you didn't catch some of the things that Brandon and I were mentioning, go back and listen to the interview because there's a lot of stuff in there that um, is really important. So. 
I'll just leave it at that. And I'll, I'll say as, as always, you know, I hope that you can go and rate and review the show. I hope that you share this with others. Word of mouth is the best way to get the word out there. Social media is all right. We'd love for you to do that too. Um, but uh, just telling people, people that you know will be helped by this share it with them um and and then as always for you what we're hoping for what we're praying for is that you'll take everything you're learning from this show from the resources that we're sharing on this show and you'll use it to help you to love orphan and vulnerable children better and better each and every day thanks a lot have a great couple weeks we hope you've enjoyed today's Think Orphan podcast. For all the information in this week's podcast, please visit us at thinkorphan.com. You too can be part of the conversation. Send your questions to info at thinkorphan.com or join us on the Think Orphan Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again on the next edition of Think Orphan.